Blog Talk Radio. and Sportsbeat Radio. This is Sportsbeat, a provocative, insightful, informative, and educational show that we hope will educate the sports listener to the specific of sport. With interviews, analysis, and a comprehensive look at the topics we feel will be appealing to the listener, and that said, we're not just your average call-in, same subject, same question over and over sports radio, but we like to think of ourselves as informative and educational radio. So why not sit back and for the next 30 minutes or so, we hope you'll find the program informative, educational, and above all, enjoyable. Now, with that said and done, this is Sports Beat, and we're coming at you live, and I'm your host, John Spooler. So, everybody, welcome to this segment of Sports Beat Radio Talking Sports for the first day of February, February 1st. 2023, the Northeast woke up to uh, dusting of snow, 17, 18 degrees this Saturday for the high, winter is here, and if you don't like it, then there's not much you can do about it. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on yet another segment of Sports Beat Radio Talk and Sports. Today, part two of my story of Super Bowl One. I. I was uh, 12 years old. Back in 1967, and I was able to uh, attend the first Super Bowl, played at the iconic Memorial Coliseum in Los Angeles, California, right near Figueroa Street. I know the street well, having gone to school there. And little did I know that I'd be back uh, several years later as a student at USC, uh, studying with the great Christopher Parkening and uh, some of the other great uh, players Uh, as a music major and getting to see the Trojans at USC play at that iconic field. And so for a 12-year-old, it was something special. You heard the opening uh, remarks by the great John Facenda, who, uh, courtesy of NFL Films, uh, we thank them for that. And basically what happened was my father was a submarine commander, lieutenant commander in the United States Navy was a career officer. We lived many places, uh, went to over 20 schools in 12 years. I was always the new kid. Uh, and so my sports career was always cut short because I never lived in a place long enough to be able to participate. 
when I was in third grade, I remember having the lead in a play called Jack and Jill. I was Jack, mainly because I was so small in those days. And uh, my father interrupted the the uh, scenario by saying we're moving, and we moved uh, from Connecticut to uh, San Diego. So my career as an actor was over. My career, a lot of things never was able to plant the seeds that I wanted to, but sports was really a major thing for me. I started to watch sports probably in the early 60s, around 63, somewhere in there. Uh, I still think that era of football was the greatest, although we're all privy to our eras. Most people today who are in their 20s say this is the greatest era. because Why? Because it's the only era you know. But anyway, my father was never a guy who was real close. We never, I think one time I remember him playing ball with me outside. Uh, most of the time he discouraged uh, me from doing certain things. He thought education was much more important than sports. Uh, I don't remember him being uh, much into sports. Most kids get their uh, affection for sports through their fathers usually, sometimes their mothers, sometimes through uh, brothers and everything, but usually the father. My father uh, was a University of Nebraska uh, attendee, and of course he followed the Cornhuskers uh, whenever they were on, but I don't know if he could name any of the players. He just wasn't really into it, but uh, we lived in Long Beach back in uh, 1967, 66, and uh, I saw him reading the newspaper one morning. He always read the paper whenever he was home. And he asked me out of the clear blue, he said, would you like to go? There's a championship game played here uh, in January. This was right around the end, a little bit after Christmas of uh, 1966. And he said, uh, you know, we'll go if you want to go. And, of course, I knew what it was. Uh, he said that the, it was the AFL-NFL World Championship, which later would become the Super Bowl. And so uh, I, as a 12-year-old, uh, was on a cloud. I couldn't believe that I would be going there. Uh, I never thought to ask my father to go. He probably would have taken me, but he certainly uh, it was a surprise to me that he offered to do it. And so we get in the car, and uh, he said to me, you know, we'll go get the tickets. And uh, in those days, it was a little different than it is today. Uh, the tickets were at a hotel outside of Los Angeles. I still remember the place vividly. Uh, my father and I stopped there in our Chevy Impala. We got out and went into the wrong place. Uh, they told us that the ticket booth was on the side of the hotel, and so we proceeded to go to the side, and there was a window there with uh, bars on it and uh, glass behind the bars, and there was a woman back there. Uh, she was uh, delineating the tickets, and there was a guy in front of us wearing a trench coat. I can still remember him. And then we come up to the window, and she says, uh, you know, are you here for championship tickets? And my father said, yes, we are. And uh, she said, well, do you want the $12 or the $10 tickets? And I, I kid you not, in those days, the Super Bowl, the big ticket was $12. And it was interesting because a lot of people boffed at that. Um, and I'll tell you the story about my father in a minute, but uh, a lot of people didn't go because of it. Now, the Super Bowl, to get not to get sidetracked, uh, actually took place on January 15, 1967. After the championship games were over in the AFL-NFL, they really didn't have a place to play. 
a lot of people don't realize this, and so they had uh, to come up with a, a, an arena. Uh, a lot of them weren't available because other things were going on, and so uh, only six weeks before the Super Bowl did they uh, agree on the Los Angeles Coliseum, a great place, of course, one of the great venues of sports in our in our country. Uh, to be able to stand next to that place uh, gives you the shivers when you think about what has gone on there. This weekend, of course, they're going to have a NASCAR race there. But the Super Bowls were there, and baseball was there, and you name it, the Pope was there, the the Beatles and Mick Jagger was there. Everybody you can think of in any venue uh, were there. And so uh, they had to hurry up getting the facilities ready it was kind of a slipshod thing. Uh, you heard John Facenda say early on the um, opening that 65 million people watched it, which a lot of people don't realize. At the time, it was the biggest uh, watched uh, sporting event, and I believe any TV event in history. Uh, two networks covered it, NBC and uh, CBS, which was odd. CBS, the great Ray Scott did TV, who was the Packers uh, broadcaster. And I believe Frank Gifford did the color on the NBC side. It was the great Kurt Gowdy along with Paul Chrisman and uh, Rattle, Rattleman, I believe his name was. Um, I think it was John Rattleman. I, can't, I may be mispronouncing his name. He did the sidelines uh, along with Tom Brookshire for CBS. So the stage was set. We get our tickets, and my father, my father said to the lady, um, holy crap, he says, I can't believe the tickets are this much. $20 for a game, I can't believe it. And she said, well, you know, t sir, you have to take it or leave it. I can't discount them. And he, and he fumed about it. Uh, I don't know if it was in the newspaper how much they were. Maybe it wasn't, because if it was, he probably wouldn't have gone. But who knows? Um, and he basically bitched the whole way uh, home about how expensive this game was. I can't believe we're going to go see these guys in monkey suits, <laughs> you know, running up and down the field for $20. I can't believe it. Hard-earned money, you know, he's going on and on. But anyway, as a 12-year-old, I got the tickets. I still have the ticket from that game 57 years ago. Now, in those days, they used to tear the ticket in half. I asked the ticket taker, who was an older man, I still remember what he looked like, and I said, do you have to tear it? He said, son, I have to tear part of it at least. Let me tear off the corner for you. And he was supposed to tear in half because that's how they uh, calculated how many people were there. But he was very nice. He gave me the ticket. And uh, I was dreaming about the game, you know, and, and all the splendor. And then, of course, that weekend, January 13th, was a Friday. And then the 14th came, and I couldn't sleep. And then, of course, the 15th came, and uh, it was uh, – just a, a marvelous day. You know, I was going to see the Chiefs. I was a Chiefs fan. Then I always liked the AFL. Uh, I told the story in part one of my story of the Super Bowl yesterday, if you want to hear the podcast of uh, how I always uh, stuck up for the AFL. And, you know, it was interesting because uh, to get to the Super Bowl, the first team to get there was the Kansas City Chiefs. They had played the 1 o'clock game on NBC in Buffalo, the old War Memorial Stadium. Most of those stadiums were fairly decrepit in those days uh, with the AFL. And Buffalo at that time, in the middle of the 60s, was a powerhouse team. Jack Kemp, Darryl LaMonica has his backup. That was before he went to Oakland to become the Mad Bomber. And uh, you had uh, Ron McDowell, who later became a Redskin, and uh, he was on defense, and Mike Sestak, and 
uh, Booker Edgerson and a lot of those guys uh, were there. And the Buffalo Bills were big favorites to beat the Chiefs, but instead it was an ass-whipping because the Buffalo Bills only scored seven points in that game. It was 31-7. to The Chiefs totally dominated. Hank Stram, who would become a legend with the Kansas City Chiefs, went on to become the Hall of Famer, as so many of those Chiefs were, and put a, put together a masterpiece against the Buffalo Bills, uh, particularly on defense with Buck Buchanan and some of the great players on defense, uh, you know, that uh, graced the lawns of uh, Municipal Stadium out there in Kansas City. So the Chiefs went ahead as the Super Bowl AFL representative. And then uh, the 4 o'clock game, a lot of people think it was the Ice Bowl. They get mixed up, but it wasn't. Dallas had played Green Bay both years that they went to the Super Bowl. They played in the Cotton Bowl. Don Meredith, of course, who never could get a break against Green Bay the following year uh, in the Ice Bowl. He couldn't get a break on that either. And uh, the uh, Dallas Cowboys uh, came up snake bit against uh, Bart Starr and the Green Bay Packers. And so they played, and the Packers won that game, the 4 o'clock game, and of course, uh, they were the NFL representatives. So it's time to go, and, you know, I had trouble eating breakfast, and we get in the car, and we drive, and my father's still fuming about the $20 that he had to spend, uh, you know, three weeks before, or whatever it was, and we get to the game, and of course, uh, we didn't get there. We got lost, as usual. My father had the worst directions for a Navy guy, you know, who's, who piloted submarines. You'd think he would have had uh, a little bit of sense on the road, but he didn't. We ended up uh, in a uh, Spanish area of town, my father asked uh, one of the guys with his Midwestern drawl, uh, do you know how to get to uh, the football stadium? And the guy didn't know what he was talking about because my father didn't know what the stadium was called. So the guy started speaking in Spanish, and, of course, my father, in frustration, drove away. We finally somehow got on the right venue, and you could see the stadium for about a half a mile away. And so we get there, we park, and then, much to my father's dismay, it costs a dollar and a quarter to park. And now he's really upset. I can't believe, you know, that we uh, spent $20. Now I've got to spend a dollar and a quarter to get uh, the parking. And uh, anyway, we park. And this is the same man who uh, was very militaristic growing up. Uh, he was the kind of guy who would say, uh, who took a shower upstairs? And uh, me as the only child at the time, uh, you know, I, he knew it was me. And he said, you didn't uh, wipe down the tiles and Windex them. You know, I mean, this was the kind of guy he was. He was very anal, uh, as military people are, you know. And so, uh, uh, anyway, uh, we get to the game, and uh, we end up parking. Uh, they direct our Impala to the parking spot, and uh, there wasn't really a lot of tailgating in those days. That didn't become popular until later. There were a few people out there. But for the most part, every all the men were in suits. Uh, it wasn't like today where everybody's represented by with jerseys from the team. They didn't really have those kinds of things in those days. Uh, they weren't uh, uh, commercially sold as much as, of course, they are now. And uh, we get there, and, and the festivity was, uh, you know, electric. I mean, I saw, you know, Chiefs fans. Uh, there was a lot more Packer fans than Chiefs fans, and everybody was uh, – exuberant for the game you saw the chiefs logo and the grambling marching band was there who would be the halftime uh representative of course there was no paul mccartney or the stones or madonna or uh, michael jackson it was the grambling 
band and get in as we get into the stadium I see celebrities like Henry Fonda I saw Kirk Douglas I saw Doris Day um, you name it I saw it uh, there were a lot of players there that I had recognized that uh, were in attendance at the game who were not part of it that had been eliminated or teams that uh, just didn't make the playoffs and it was just electric. Now, we were sitting about 40 rows up top. Uh, it's a huge stadium. That particular stadium holds about 90,000. So there were about 62,000 people there. It's the only Super Bowl that wasn't sold out for various reasons. One, because they didn't promote it as well. Uh, TV Guide, which was the big uh, uh, television magazine, just gave it a, a couple of sentences. It was really treated not too much more than a playoff game. And uh, it didn't have uh, the flavor, of course, that it does today. There's there's talk about maybe having Super Bowl weekend as a uh, national holiday. A lot of lobbyists are trying to, uh, you know, poke Congress into uh, that direction. So we see the game and the pageantry, and uh, there's a guy, two guys on the field with backpacks. They look like they were moon astronauts, and they're flying around the stadium which was unbelievable, and they let the pigeons go. I believe they were pigeons. They could have been doves. I thought they were pigeons. And uh, these two guys met on the field, and uh, they shook hands. One had the uh, AFL kind of uh, football pants and had AFL written, and then uh, the other one was NFL, and they shook hands. And then a, a iconic moment, of course, Vince Lombardi comes out to the middle of the field. There's an AFL um, uh, letters in yellow and the NFL letters in blue, and uh, him and Hank Stram come out. I have my brownie camera with me. I'm taking all kinds of pictures. Most of them didn't come out because I didn't really know what I was doing. I'd cut heads off or they were blurred or whatever, but I got that picture of him, uh, Lombardi and Stram, uh, going ahead and shaking hands. And then, of course, the game starts. The great Al Hurt, for those of you who don't remember who he was, he was a major trumpeter of his day, a major instrumentalist. Al Hurt played the national anthem. And uh, the, the game begins. And it was an interesting game because every team called or telegrammed Vince Lombardi in the NFL. They said, basically, we can't lose this game. Now, this was a, at the time, the league was 46 years old, the NFL starting in 1920, and the AFL was only six years old. And most of the uh, owners called it a Mickey Mouse league, like my uh, math teacher, Fred Price, called it. And they didn't want to have to eat their words by losing to a, a six-year-old team. And so Lombardi, who had been asked many times during that Super Bowl week if he could rate the AFL, he refused to answer. He kind of laughed and boffed about it and just scoffed over it and then kind of didn't answer uh, because he didn't want to look bad if they lost. And in the beginning, I remember the Chiefs, of course, they had their white uniforms with the red letters. Most teams wore three-quarter sleeves in those days and the big KC uh, arrow which took up half the helmet, and, of course, the Packers in their green jerseys and uh, yellow pants, you know, that iconic uh, G on their helmets, and Star, Star was there who would become certainly the uh, MVP of the game. And uh, Paul Horning was injured, but he was in uniform, I remember. He didn't play, and uh, little-known 
young 32-year-old Max Begee was basically a backup. Him and Horney had been partying the night before, and they said uh, that uh, Max McGee was actually buzzed <laughs> during the game. Um, uh, Boyd Dowler, I believe, was separated his shoulder early, and uh, they're calling uh, Lombardi's calling for McGee to get out there. He he had no idea that he'd play the game, and probably wouldn't have if it wasn't for the injury. And so he gets out there. He can't find a helmet. He can't find his helmet. He can't find the chin strap. So what does he do? He uh, has an incredible game. One of the catches he makes behind his back, uh, he torched uh, Willie Mitchell, who is uh, now living in San uh, San Antonio. He is a head of the uh, sewer department there, the sewage authority department. Uh, I spoke with him uh, at length at one point, and uh, he said that uh, Max McGee torched me, and uh, and he did. Max McGee should have been, in my view, the MVP of the game, but they gave it to Starr, who would become the MVP of the second Super Bowl as well. And basically, the Chiefs had a hard time running the ball against this great, powerful uh, Packers defense. But one of the things that they did was that they had the play-action pass that they would fake to the fullback. The fullback was used, utilized a lot more in those days. Curtis McClinton, who would actually be really the only touchdown uh, that uh, the Chiefs would get. Uh, and so uh, what happened was uh, the play-action pass actually fooled. Now, you wouldn't think it would because uh, of the game tape that Lombardi was huge with. Uh, he was really one of the innovators of game tape. And you would think that he would have seen uh, that the Chiefs and the American Football League used uh, that play-action pass, which basically froze the linebackers and even some of the uh, defensive backs for a few seconds, and that allowed uh, the uh, uh, some of the fullbacks and halfbacks and even the uh, tight end to get open. And that's how they got some of the yardage. But Lombardi, of course, put two and two together at halftime. And I interviewed Alex Wojciechowicz, uh, who was uh, one of the great centers of all time, Hall of Famer, played for Fordham, the seven blocks of granite, uh, which Vince Lombardi was part of. And he said, you know, Lombardi fooled us all as a coach because we thought, since he was so intelligent, that he would be the next Italian pope or even maybe the president. You know, after all, he was at uh, St. Cecilia's High School in Englewood, New Jersey. He taught physics, advanced math, chemistry, and advanced science. This guy was a bright, bright guy. And Mojahowicz told me that he was basically a marginal player at best. But how many marginal players have we seen become great coaches? And so Lombardi did what uh, he didn't do very often, and that was blitz in the second half, and Lojahovic said that uh, basically what Lombardi would do in the Packers is they would kind of feel you out in the first half and then put the clamps on you in the second half, and that's exactly what happened. Once they uh, started to blitz, which the Packers were not known for, uh, Dawson was scrambling, he threw an interception to Willie Wood, and the game started to turn, and the Packers basically uh, were uh, the winners in that game concisively having the Chiefs only played 14 points. But at halftime, it was 14-10, the Packers. And Mike Garrett had some yardage. Uh, Otis Taylor had some receiving yardage. Of course, uh, McClinton uh, was interesting. I uh, met Curtis McClinton uh, to get his autograph and a picture with him, and he spelled his name wrong on, <laughs> on the autograph uh, picture. Was, I always uh, got a chuckle out of that. But uh, he was a great fullback. Uh, blocking for Mike Garrett. So, you know, the game 
was just a, kind of a dream for a 12-year-old. Uh, the memories of it I still have. Uh, I don't think any of the Super Bowls compare to it. It's only because I was there. Uh, I don't think I could ever go to another one because it's gotten so ridiculously expensive that only well-off people or corporate people can go. And it's a shame that, uh, you know, that sports has gotten that way, but it is. No longer can you take your uh, family of four to a game, a baseball game, let's say, without spending $200 between parking and tickets and everything else that you have. And it's, it's really become a travesty in my view. But nonetheless, I uh, am very grateful for the fact that my father saw that in the paper. And it was one of those godly moments that uh, was meant to be. You know, everything came out right, even though he cursed and hollered throughout the uh, – uh, time before we uh, we got the tickets and everything else, and then became unglued when we had to pay a dollar and a quarter for parking. Uh, and I remember him saying at one point, "Never again! I'll never do this again." Uh, but then he said to me uh, when he calmed down, "I'm glad you enjoyed it, and I'm glad we were able to go." And so that was um, really the highlight of the Super Bowl: having those memories, seeing Vince Lombardi in person, and coming out with his white shirt and tie, and of course the the great Hank Stram, who came out with his blazer on, I believe it was black, with the KC emblem, if I can remember, having that program in his hand that he always rolled up. And seeing the Chiefs, uh, you know, put up a pretty good battle for the first half. And then Lombardi, of course, uh, I saw a tape later that Tom Brookshire uh, would uh, finally uh, – interview him as the winning coach in the locker room. Lombardi didn't really like to talk to uh, the – it was very private in a lot of ways. Even though he hosted parties at his house and everything, he was very private in front of the camera. He felt the players should get the glory and not him. But Brookshire said to him, now this uh, question, do you rate the AFL uh, with the NFL? And Lombardi basically said no. He said, I, I think that this league is, uh, is, is about mediocre, some of our mediocre teams. And Lombardi didn't mince words when he did say things, and he was usually always right, but he actually ended up eating his words because only a few years later, Joe Namath would take the New York Jets as a masterpiece from his coach, Weeb Eubank, and uh, beat the Baltimore Colts with uh, the great running over 100 yards between Matt Snell and Emerson Boozer. And, uh, you know, that was a masterpiece game. And then, of course, a year later, the Chiefs would get revenge, and Hank Stram and Len Dawson would beat the Minnesota Vikings concisively. Uh, Bud Grant, of course, the great coach of Minnesota all those years, still alive in his early 90s, still vibrant at Minnesota games. And the Chiefs, of course, uh, as the Packers, uh, started to fade into oblivion as uh, Lombardi would leave uh, knowing that his team was aged and uh, go ahead and uh, give to Phil Bankston, his assistant coach, who would become the coach, and that was a, uh, actually a long disaster for the uh, Packers as they would be uh, terrible during the 70s. Uh, Bart Starr was one of their coaches, one of the most beloved players in Green Bay. He couldn't do anything with them because they didn't really have the players. And the Chiefs uh, also had that same uh, enigma where they uh, – we're getting kind of long in the tooth. Lombardi uh, leaves for Washington to become the general manager of the Redskins, and Stram takes off for uh, Cajun country and becomes the head coach uh, in not-so-good fashion with the uh, New Orleans Saints and ends up getting fired. 
Uh, and of course, Lombardi dies from colon cancer uh, in his 50s uh, at, at the uh, 1970. So that was kind of a look at uh, what happened in my first Super Bowl. Um, if I had a chance to go to another one, I don't know that it would be anywhere near because I'm much older now. So I don't know if you would be excited as much. But for a 12-year-old to be able to uh, entertain that day, January 15th, 1967, and every time it's a January 15th, I always kind of celebrate it in my mind, going back to that 57 years ago when uh, uh, I was able to be a part of history, having seen not only a, a game that uh, I wouldn't say it was a great game, but it was a very memorable game at between uh, the pages of my mind, as the song goes, and uh, I'm very, very grateful that uh, even though my father was a tyrant during most of it, uh, that we had the opportunity to be able to go. So that's a look at uh, my take on Super Bowl One, my story. Uh, thanks for listening. Hopefully uh, you were entertained by uh, my tenure there, and uh, it's something that if any of you uh, are able to go, I think you'll have the same kind of memories, particularly if you have kids uh, and you can afford to go to a championship game like that. Well, I'll about do it for our show today. Thanks so much for joining us on Sports Beat Radio Talk and Sports, where we were talking about my story of Super Bowl One. I. I was there. That's the name of the show. Part one was yesterday, if you care to listen to the previous podcast. Of course, the Super Bowl coming up in uh, two weeks, the Chiefs and the Philadelphia Eagles. The Eagles are now two-point favorites in that game. We'll see how it goes uh, as they play in uh, Glendale, Arizona. Sports Beat's been a presentation of Mountain Meadow Productions and Sports Beat Radio. And until tomorrow, all of you have a great day. Thanks for listening, everybody. Be safe.